Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. In this podcast, we'll discuss patient engagement, sometimes termed patient participation, what can be done better to engage patients such that healthcare outcomes are improved. With me to discuss this issue and her related work is Dr. Jesse Grumman. Welcome, Jesse. Hi. Thank you for being here. For background, let me provide or make these few comments. In a 2010 report written by the Center for Advancing Health titled Snapshot of People's Engagement in Their Health Care, a report that compiled data from 31 national surveys, these two uh, 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 findings were published. A majority of adults who had been diagnosed with high blood pressure or another heart condition do not regularly check their blood pressure. Also, one in five adults who have been diagnosed with diabetes admit they have never monitored their blood sugar, and an additional 15% check it only infrequently. Also, too, the report found a majority of adults, 55%, do not consistently read information about a new prescription or follow medication directions. One in three adults say they have never confirmed that their medication from a pharmacy matches their doctor's script. In some, the survey synthesis found two-thirds of those surveyed either performed patient engagement behaviors inconsistently or tentatively or did not perform them at all. These survey findings are worrisome because nearly one in two adults, according to the CDC, lives with at least one chronic disease. Among Medicare beneficiaries, nearly half suffer from at least three chronic conditions. Chronic disease explains seven of ten deaths each year, and more than 75% of U.S. healthcare costs are due to treating these conditions. This means patients need to be actively engaged in their own health care or ideally be the primary agents for their own care. Phrased another way, health care reform or improvements in health care outcomes will only be achieved with increased patient engagement. With that, allow me now to introduce Dr. Jesse Grumman. Dr. Grumman is president of the Center for Advancing Health, a nonpartisan Washington-based policy institute dedicated to advancing patient engagement in healthcare. The center advocates for policies and practices to overcome the challenges people face in finding good care and getting the most from it. Dr. Grumman is also a professor, a professoral lecturer, excuse me, in the School of Public Health and Health Services at the George Mason University. George Washington University. Excuse me, George Washington University. She serves on the Board of Trustees of the Center for Medical Technology Policy and the Technical Board for the Millback Memorial Fund. She, too, is a fellow of the Society for Behavioral Medicine and a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the New York Academy of Medicine. Among other works, Dr. Grumman is the author of The Experience of the American Patient, Risk, Trust, and Choice, published in 2009, and she was graduated from Columbia University with her doctorate in social psychology. So with that as background, let's begin. Can I just say one thing, David, before we begin? Uh, I'll, I'll be speaking today as the president of the Center for Advancing Health, but I also always speak as a patient. I've been diagnosed with four different kinds of cancer, and I live every day with the sequelae of that many diagnoses and that much treatment. I'm a frequent, although not enthusiastic, user of healthcare services. Great, thank you. In fact, we were going to get to some of your personal experience. So I was going to ask, to begin, if you could briefly summarize, although I did note in the introduction, uh, the mission of the Center for Advancing Health. Yeah, we work 
from the patient's perspective to both to understand what it takes for people sick or well to find good health care and make the most of it we take what we learn from patients and we transform it into tools and resources to help patients and family caregivers and policymakers serve this end finding good care and making the most of it okay well let's get into then the specifics what then, in your view, is a working definition of patient engagement and or how is it exhibited? We define patient engagement as actions people take uh, for their health and health care in order to benefit from their health and health care. Let me just give you a little background on how we arrived at that. You know, if you talk to researchers around the country, you'll get many, many definitions of patient engagement. We're very, very clear that when, when we talk about patient engagement, we talk about actions people take to benefit from their health care. Um, <laughs> in 2005, uh, I was just finishing my treatment for colon cancer and the Center for Advancing Health got a, a big grant and we were asked to by a foundation to tell them what they could do to improve um, older people's engagement in their health care and so I went around and first I, I interviewed a lot of experts to just figure out what outcomes I should be looking at and I, I couldn't pin down um, a single definition and uh, eventually I talked to an, an expert in quality improvement who said, you know, the quality improvement move, movement wandered around for years before it finally figured out that it needed to be very specific about the behaviors that constitute quality. You should define engagement by the behaviors that are proximal to the outcome that you want to see. And so we then kind of took that very seriously and we interviewed over 200 people about their experiences with healthcare. What did they have to do and know in order to benefit from their care? We ended up with the engagement behavior framework, which is 43 behaviors that basically <clears throat> we have to do in order to benefit from our care. Now, those 43 behaviors are divided into 10 different categories and buckets, and they're things that you would, of course, imagine. They include, you know, finding safety and care, that is finding the right physician, picking the right health plan, you know, finding the right hospital, uh, participate in treatment. Um, that means to actually, you know, develop a plan with your physician and follow through on it. We have to learn how to communicate with our healthcare professionals um, effectively so that we're telling them accurately what's going on with us and are having conversations that move us forward in, in caring for ourselves. Uh, we have to promote our health, that is, we have to do the things with regard to our lifestyle and diet, exercise, sleep, stress, all the things that whether you are, have a chronic condition or are well, that you really need to do in order to be as healthy as you can. We have to organize our health care, and for those people who have chronic conditions, you know what this means. It means schlepping information from one place to another, coordinating information, coordinating appointments, making sure that your doctors talk to one another. Uh, get preventive care, of course, you know what this means. It means, you know, getting mammograms on schedule and vaccines and that kind of thing. Uh, paying for health care. Even if you have excellent health care, you still have co-pays and deductibles and, and out-of-network payments, all kinds of things that, that all of us these days, not just people who are uninsured, have to deal with from the payment end. Plan for care at the end of life. Everyone these days is 
pretty well aware of what that actually means and what it takes to do that. You have to make good treatment decisions, sharing in, in the decisions that our our physicians want to make <laughs> about our treatment and, and really understanding the risks and the benefits and making our preferences known and making those preferences matter. And, of course, seeking health knowledge. You know, there are lots of things that we do to care for ourselves that we just have to know about um, and we have to act on good knowledge, knowing how to find out stuff about routine self-care and then acting on it is part of what we have to do. So there's a lot of things that we have to do. The good news is that um, the bad news is that all of us eventually have to do all these things. The good news is that none of us has to do all of them at once. But we do have to know that it's important to do them. We have to know that it's possible to do them. And we have to know that it's safe to do them. Okay, thank you. So let's, so with that as sort of an overview of what is patient engagement or the elements thereof that constitute it, let me ask you this. What explains uh, why patients remain uh, unengaged or less active or, or not sufficiently active in their own care? Well, you know, David, uh, the snapshot uh, document that you uh, mentioned in, in your introduction uh, was interesting in that we found in all of these different surveys, regardless of the, of the behavior that was being tracked, almost every single behavior found that um, a, about a quarter of the people do that behavior, the behaviors we were just talking about, those engagement behaviors, and then the rest of us just kind of go, well, we kind of do it, or we don't do it, or we don't think we should have to do it, or we don't know how to do it. That was a really startling finding, because if you, you know, if you go online or you read the newspaper, you think, oh, man, everybody's really interested in, in their health care. Uh, but when it, <laughs> when it comes right down to it, um, we're not that interested in, you know, really making the most of the health care available to us. Why do I think that that's happening? Well, I think most of us are mostly well most of the time. And so we don't really realize how much things have changed, how many new responsibilities we have as patients. I mean, you think about it. We come home from the hospital quicker or, but sicker. You know, you have a hysterectomy, you come home the next day. You have a knee surgery, you come home the next day. Operations that you used to spend a long time in the hospital being cared for by professionals, we now take care of ourselves at home. You know, wound care, mobility, diet, symptom management, all that stuff we do at home now. Similarly, there are medications that, um, with drug development that make it possible for people like me with cancer, people with HIV, diabetes, rheumatoid disease. We can live long and well with those diseases, but only if we're able to manage these complex regimens and the lifestyle changes that go along with them. So, you know, we, we're just, most of us, completely unaware of how much we now need to do in order to actually make the most of our care. So that, I think that's one thing. I think there's also a cultural shift that has yet to take place. I think it's probably happening more with younger people, but less with older. And that is that we're, we still are, are, have a tradition of uh, when we're sick, wanting to be cared for, you know, and not wanting to have to be active and inquisitive and and finding things out and making judgments. I mean, when we're sick, we want to be cared for, and that's the way it was when we were growing up, and, and it's a little hard to, to make that shift now to thinking, well, I may be sick, but I got a lot of decisions to make and a lot of research to do. And then I think, you know, I think there are a lot of us who um, are not in... A position to really take these tasks on. We're already sick. We're alone. 
we have cognitive or physical impairments that keep us from being able to do this. We lack the, the math skills or the health literacy skills that would allow us to really make good judgments, find good information, be very kind of um, decisive in our decisions about our health care. So I think there are lots of reasons why we don't do it, but I believe <clears throat> that being a, a, a knowledgeable, active participant in your care is no longer an optional thing that you do if you just have a little extra time and access to broadband. It's something that's absolutely necessary if you're going to fully benefit from your care. So we just so thank you. So we've discussed what patient or the elements again of patient engagement, uh, why some patients are are insufficiently say. Um, engaged or unengaged. So the next question is, how best can patients engage in their own health care? I was going to ask the question, and you corrected me before we started this interview, the question I was going to ask is, how best can providers or payers engage patients? And you said it's really more uh, the former of patients actively engaging, although I will ask you um, this latter question. but and, and I ask you, how best can patients engage? Feel free to draw on your own personal experience. Sure. Well, first let me just address the engage word question. I, I think we should use the word people engaging in their health and health care to, to really refer to actions that we take. Uh, I think that it's confusing then to say that my doctor is going to age, engage me in engaging in my care. Like, what's that about? That's too many engages for me. It's, I mean, it's a simple la English language problem. But I just think it's clear if, you know, if my... Um, employer, for example, helps me or facilitates or, or motivates or gives me incentives to take actions, to engage in my care. It just it seems clearer to me. So that's, my, that's the source of my preference. Now, what was the question again? How best can patients <clears throat> engage in, in managing their health status? Well, you know, I, there's a lot of... There, there are a lot of... Um, websites and materials and pamphlets out there that should be able to help people do this. I don't think that we are, that most of us, are going to really make the transition from being kind of passive recipients of care to active involved participants in our care without a very strong and consistent message from particularly our clinicians, but other people who have a stake in our health. And what we need to hear is that it's important that we engage in our health care, that we'll do better if we're knowledgeable and that if we are, participate in decisions and that we are active in doing the things that we have agreed on in our plan. It's important that we do that. We, can, we will do better if we are managed to do these things. We need to know from our clinicians and others that it's possible to do these things. I have to say that in my experience, um, it's very difficult to do a lot of these things. I am continually challenged by what it takes for me to get good care. Here's just a little example. So over the past year, I have been cared for by eight different uh, physicians. Uh, some because of the stomach cancer that I'm recovering from now, and some because of symptoms and chronic conditions that I have that result from previous treatments. Um, not one of those doctors has 
well, there was one time when one of those doctors talked to another. Other than that, in the past year, no one has talked to another. I am the sole arbiter of who gets what information, who gets what test results, who knows what's happening, what symptoms I have, uh, what treatments I'm doing. I decide all of that. Now, what's that about? If we had an interoperable electronic health record, as we indeed should, given the billions of dollars that have been invested in this, we, I, I should not be the one who's making all of these decisions about where my information goes. In fact, every doctor who treats me should be able to see what drugs I'm on, what treatments I'm doing, how I'm doing, what symptoms I'm complaining about. But this is just not the case. It's formidable for me to manage all of that information. And I'm, you know, I'm a piker in this chronic disease stuff. I don't, I have eight doctors, but I'm not that sick. You know, I'm still working and hanging out and running around and stuff. I mean, there are people out there with far more complicated health situations than I am in. And, you know, they either coordinate this information or they, they have multiple tests of the same thing. Um, they're at, at risk because nobody knows their full medication regimen. Um, physicians uh, uh, prescribe or recommend things that are in co conflict with one another. I mean, we can't have this. This is not. This is not good. But it's not. It shouldn't be my job. You know, I. It should be the. It should. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be left to my kind of expertise to um, make those decisions about who gets to know what. The third thing that we need to hear from our clinicians, and so, so let me just finish that. So it needs to be possible for us to do these things. Those 43 behaviors, it has to be possible for us to find out how much a treatment would cost. It has to be possible for us to look at comparative price and quality information. It has to be possible for us to, to develop a treatment plan with our doctor and get in touch with him or her afterwards to see if it's working. These things have to be possible, and for many people now, these things are not possible. So there's a lot of work to be done in order for us to, 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 to take down the barriers to us actually effectively engaging in our care. And the final thing is that it has to be safe for us to engage in our care. And there are two pieces of safety. The first piece of safety is that it has to be it has to be possible for someone like me, with my level of education and sophistication and understanding, to care for myself, to follow these recommendations, and not hurt myself. So that's one thing. And the other aspect of safety is it has to be safe for me to express my preferences and to um, ask questions without fear of punishment. We've seen a number of studies this year that talk about patients really sitting on their preferences and their questions be for fear of being seen as a difficult patient or a bad patient. We can't, this cannot be. We need to be able to be full participants in our care, which means that our preferences are respected and that our questions are answered in order for us to actually take effective action. So thank you. Let's go then to the how I was in, initially or originally going to ask this question or phrase it relevant to how can providers, clinicians, or payers engage patients and by way of um, giving some weight to that question, there was in the Affordable Care Act a provision, although it was not funded, uh, for the government to develop um, and market a program uh, that produced patient decision aids. And accompanying that, I will say that there has been discussion by the quality, you did mention the issue of quality, there have been discussions by the National Equality Forum, amongst others, 
about developing measures to test to the extent that patients are engaged. So what can the, say, the system side or the provider side do? Well, I think um, the, pers- the provider side has a lot to answer, answer for in terms of reducing the barriers that we face in taking effective action for our care. Uh, one of the things, one of the ways that we use the engagement behavior framework, those 43 behaviors, is to, to think for each stakeholder, no stakeholder is responsible for removing the barriers to all of those behaviors, but each stakeholder has very specific um, responsibility and a stake in some of the behaviors. So, for example, employers don't have a big stake, for example, in people making a uh, treatment plan with their doctor. They hope that they do, but it's, it's kind of, that's part, that belongs in the clinician-patient relationship. But they do have a really big stake in people understanding how their health insurance works, how payment for their health insurance works, the quality of various health insurance plans, assuming that anybody actually has a choice of a plan these days. You know, those are things that, um, uh, uh, promoting health, these are things that, um, Um, like smoking and diet and exercise. These are things that employers have a really big stake in. And we think that employers should focus on on reducing the barriers to the behaviors uh, where they have standing to make a difference. So um, from that, okay, so, so... putting that aside and trying to answer your question more directly, yeah, it's, you know, it's a really, um, uh, shared decision-making is a really important effort. It's an important effort because it, it starts to reify this notion that it's possible and good for doctors to talk about um, trade-offs, risks and benefits of different treatment approaches with their patients. Now, they're starting very modestly. They talk only about treatment, uh, preference-sensitive treatments, which is things like, you know, knee replacement and back surgery and um, some breast cancer treatments, prostate cancer treatments. And and I think that that's very wise. But to me, the very notion that um, those things are are becoming part of the vernacular and have been become part and are, were included in the ACA mean that it's time for that for this is shared decision making as an aspirational approach to patient care uh, is coming into its own that it's not only that physicians and other clinicians will share in making decisions about preference sensitive decisions but that this provides a template for clinicians to talk with their patients about a variety of treatment decisions. Um, some of them tra- preference sensitive and some of them not. I've had physicians say to me, well, this is what I recommend. Uh, here are the pros and cons. Do you, do you agree? Do you want to try this? Do you want to try something else? Which I think is kind of the way of the future, you know, especially if you are there and you want to be involved and you understand that the outcome of your decision uh, has implications for probably the length and the quality of your life, you should be consulted. Your preferences should be taken into account. And I think shared decision-making does that. Uh, So from the standpoint of it being an unfunded issue, it kind of is heartbreaking. But I think that there's real momentum behind it and the idea that the National Quality Forum started in the direction of trying to figure out what good indicators are for that is, um, 
that really excellent. Great, thank you. We do have uh, time for one further question, and that concerns another provision which actually was funded in the Affordable Care Act, and that's the creation of the acronym PCORI, which stands for the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, which between now and 2019 will spend $3 billion on comparative effectiveness research. But again, the title is patient-centered. So what's your advice on how best the Institute can forward or achieve patient-centered outcomes research? I wouldn't presume to advise PCORI on this issue. I think uh, PCORI is getting lots of advice from many, many people, and uh, I wouldn't privilege mine above other people's. I, I really appreciate uh, PCORI's uh, efforts to be inclusive of a wide range of people who identify themselves as patients and having the patient perspective. I uh, do believe that it's incredible incredibly challenging to do this well and to get the most and the best out of us. We are, we patients are a wily bunch, uh, incredibly diverse, and we bring to the table um, a cornucopia of different, <laughs> different gifts and different needs. And um, uh, I am in awe that they are taking this on with such seriousness. Let me, uh, we do, let me just ask if I could, I'll just ask Thorne one more last question and then we'll probably hit our time boundary. When we talk about patient engagement, we'd be somewhat remiss if we didn't talk about the role of family caregivers, the informal caregiver. And they have to be equally informed, uh, I would imagine, at least as it relates to sort of treatment protocols for patients or, or their family member. However, unfortunately, family caregivers up until date have uh, been largely ignored by the healthcare system What's your sense of how we can better incorporate family caregivers in this involve in involving patients and improving their care outcomes? You know, I don't actually, um, I don't draw a line between patients and family caregivers, uh, and I, um, I think the only reason that I haven't just added them in every sentence is for sheer brevity's sake. Um, mothers caring for children, children caring for aging parents who aren't able to make decisions, husbands and wives together. I don't mean that we are necessarily merged in our caregiving, but we and the people who we love who are ill, people who are ill and the people who love us, <laughs> put another way, are part of a continuum of having to um, to actually take on so many of these new responsibilities. You know, I, I'm, one of the things that just um, really concerns me is that I look at myself and I look at my expertise and my experience and my knowledge and my support and I see how very, very difficult it is for me to do what I need to do in order to make, to find good health care and then make the most of it. And I really worry about people who are alone and who don't have um, the support of a family caregiver, who don't have friends, uh, who can help take on that burden because we've built a health care system now that depends not only on patients taking on that responsibility, but whoever is in the patient's vicinity who's willing to take it on. Uh, and we really haven't um, kind of come to terms 
with the fact that the success of this very mutual enterprise, healthcare, depends so much on us and the people who love us, and what happens if we're alone and ill. I think that's, you know, um, patient engagement is increasingly being defined as a public health problem. I would like to see it also very clearly seen as an equity problem. Okay, thank you, uh, Jesse. And with that, unfortunately, we're at our time boundary, so I'll say thank you again for your time. You're most welcome. And that'll conclude this podcast. Thank you again.